entirety of it. We're kind of summarizing kind of the gist of what's going on and pulling out elements of what was going on in the early church and what does that mean for us? What is it that we ourselves as a church in small town Indiana, what does that mean for us all these thousands of years later and what does, what does that have to do with our lives and how does it apply to us as far as living the Christian life in similar ways to what they did. And we saw that there's some things that we apply directly to us, and there's some things that were unique to them, but that doesn't mean that we don't experience something else as far as, you know, like the Holy Spirit and things like that are related, like we saw last week, and we'll get into some more of that this week. So let's pray together as we start. Father, we, we thank you that you included this in your word so that we might have an understanding of what it looked like for gatherings of believers, what it meant for them to trust in Christ, to live their lives as witnesses for him. And as we hear descriptions of what happened to them, may we have our hearts and spirits stirred that we might live more for Christ like they did. They weren't perfect by any means, and neither are we, but may we, may we learn from their example what it means to be faithful to the life that you've called us to live as Christians. So may our hearts be prepared this morning to hear your word. May it not be any sort of eloquent language by me that would convince anybody, but may it be your spirit in our, working in our hearts that would convict us of areas of our life where we need to become more like Jesus. So use your word this morning to speak to us, and may we be ready to hear it and apply it as we go throughout our lives as believers. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm guessing that, like, football fans in this area are kind of split, right? You probably have Colts fans and Bengals fans, right, considering kind of where we're at. Now, you pick which team you like. It doesn't matter at this point. I'm just using it for an illustration purpose. How would you feel if your Colts or Bengals, about halfway through the game, just decided, you know what, the other team's just not letting us get a first down, we're done. You know what? They're, they're just putting up too much of a fight against us. They're not. They're, they're just pushing too hard against us. There's too much opposition from them. Let's just stop. Now, some of you maybe feel like that's how your team already plays sometimes with some of the years that some teams have. But that wouldn't be right, right? We know that to just give up because there's opposition, we wouldn't allow that to happen in a football game. But yet... Sometimes I feel like that's the way we can respond as Christians, is we, we fear rejection from people if we try to share Jesus with them, and we say, you know what, there's just too much opposition, too much pushing against me, I'm not even going to try. I'm just not even going to share the gospel, I'm not even going to talk about Jesus, he'll be my own thing, right, but I'm just not going to push it on other people, I'm not going to talk about it, just too much people are going to reject me. Now let's go 
to another point. Say the Bengals and Colts are playing against each other. And say I tell you before the game starts, you have to pick a team to play for. You have to. you got to play the game. But what if I told you before the game started which team was going to win? Which team would you pick? Some of you are like, I don't care. I don't care if we win or lose. I ain't picking that other team, right? The point is most of us would pick the team that's going to win because we know from the get-go we're going to be victorious in the end, right? What if I told you the game's, for the winning team, the game is going to be extremely difficult. You're going to get bloodied up. You're going to get bruised up. You're going to get knocked down a bunch of times. You're going to basically look like you're losing most of the game, but at the end, you win. How many of us would still choose the winning team? Probably a lot of us, right? Because winning is very important to especially our American culture, but I think that's what we have in Acts. We have apostles, we have disciples of Jesus with two options. There's too much opposition, we're just going to quit. Or, we know who wins in the end. So we're going to keep pushing through. We're going to get bloodied up, we're going to get arrested, we're going to get beaten. Maybe even stoned to death. But we know who wins. And we've already chosen what team we're going to be on. So we're going to keep going. We're going to see some more elements of that stir up in these chapters this morning. So let me recap the end of last week for us. In chapters 3 and 4, we saw Peter and John get arrested for sharing Jesus, right? There was a man healed in chapter 3. They get arrested. They come back and tell them not to preach about Jesus. Peter's classic response, we must obey God rather than men, right? They're, they're bold with it. They, they're released from prison. They're praising God because of their boldness. They go back and pray for more, more boldness. So there was this external opposition they faced. And now we come to chapter 5. They faced internal opposition, right? We have Ananias and Sapphira who tried to lie about how much money they were giving to the church. Both of them die as a result of it, just showing the seriousness of how God takes the holiness of his church, right? And we saw at the end of last week in the partway through chapter 5 that fear kind of spread among the church and the people outside the church because of what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. And so that brings us to where we're at today. The church has now been set apart from the world. These believers are different People are beginning to take seriously these Christians. Luke goes on in chapter 5 to describe the miracles and wonders and signs that the apostles were doing. It even says that people were nervous or scared to join with these people because they were holding in such high esteem the apostles with everything that was being done. So they were scared to join them, but they were trusting them enough and were amazed enough by what was going on that they were bringing all the sick to them. Even to the point that they were just hoping that Peter's shadow would pass over their sick person. And it says all of them were healed. Even the people whose Peter's shadow passed over were being healed. But as you would expect... This stirs up problems with the leaders of this day. Right? You have the Jewish leaders, specifically the high priest and the Sadducees. It says they were filled with jealousy. 
Up until this point in history, they were the ones who were the well-respected ones. They were the ones held in high esteem. And now all of a sudden you have all these, these apostles coming around healing people, and you have all these people, these Jewish people who are abandoning the Jewish leaders going to the apostles, all because of a Jesus whom they killed. The Jewish leaders are, I thought we got rid of this guy. And now we have his followers healing people and all these Jewish people that we once had the respect of are following these guys. We can look at these Jewish leaders and we can say, how sad, right? How sad that they missed the point. That they had all of these traditions and laws that were supposed to point them to Jesus and they missed Jesus. Because they killed him. And now they're not believing in him. They're not following him. They, they missed him. But I think if we take a step back and kind of look at the lives of these Jewish leaders, we can maybe understand a little element of their frustration of what's going on. Have you ever had a family tradition that you've done for years and years and years and then somebody messes it up? Somebody decides not to show up this year? Or you have a family vacation you always do and somebody decides, you know what, I want to go this place this year. And you're like, we've done this for 15 years. And now you want to change it up. Right? You ever get frustrated by your own tradition being taken away from you? Now imagine being these Jewish leaders, right? This is not just a yearly tradition. This is their lives. They've committed their lives to following these Jewish traditions, these laws set in place that they thought were what was making them righteous. Now, yes, they missed the point on that because Jesus is the one who, only one who can make them righteous. They missed that. But can we understand an element somewhat of they've committed their lives to these traditions and now it's being stripped from them? That doesn't make it okay for them to miss Jesus. I'm just saying... I wonder sometimes if we might not have responded in the same way if we were in their position. So we see they arrest the apostles. The arrest doesn't last long. That night, an angel comes and opens the door and releases them, tells them to go preach. The apostles listen. They go preach. The council, these Jewish leaders, don't find out until the next day. Right? They send people to go check the prison. They're not there. They find out that they're out preaching, so they go to them. They bring them in again, and they say to the apostles, Didn't we already tell you? Stop talking about Jesus. And we see a similar response to what we saw from Peter before. Look at chapter 5, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Almost word for word from last week, right? We must obey God rather than men. And then Peter goes into a gospel message. You killed Jesus. He was crucified. God raised him from the dead. God has exalted him so that Israel, which is the Jews, this, these Jewish leaders even, 
Israel might have repentance and forgiveness of sins. And this is what we're witnesses of. That's Peter's message to them. You can repent and be forgiven. Just trust in this resurrected Jesus whom you've missed up until this point. Since it's been asked or mentioned twice by Peter, I think it's a question we need to ask ourselves. If we were in a similar situation, would we obey God rather than men? Because the reality is, for followers of Jesus, persecution is inevitable. If you just look at across the world in China, you have a government who has vowed themselves to destroy Christianity in their country. They're arresting people who just go to church. They're burning crosses. They're banning Bibles from being sold in their country. And we hear that and we say, it's on the other side of the world. Like, yeah, that saddens us, but that's not what we have right now. Well, let's bring it a little closer to home then. We have Pastor John MacArthur in California, who's been told by the California governor, you can't have church indoors right now. And he held services and now is being told you either get $1,000 a day daily fine or you get arrested. Or about the protests in Portland, Oregon that are saying in, in the name of our movement, of our protests, we're going to burn Bibles. That doesn't sound a whole lot different than burning crosses in China to me. Now I get it, this is, that's still West Coast, but... My question is, if it makes it to you and me, who are we going to obey? If it makes it from the West Coast to the East Coast, it's going to come through small town Indiana at some point. Are we going to obey God rather than men? Persecution is inevitable. For right now, for you and me, it might be just rejection by the people that are closest to us if we try to share Jesus with them. But later in life, it, for all we know, it could mean you have to sign a document saying you're not a Christian, otherwise you get arrested. Who are you going to obey? These witnesses of Christ and Acts stand with God because they know the results. They know what's going to happen. Right? There's two parts to this first point. There's an inevitable persecution and there's inevitable advancement. Because there's a man who stands up who's actually a Jewish leader. He's a Pharisee. A guy named Gamaliel. He's actually a mentor of the Apostle Paul we find out later. And he stands up and he shares with this council as they're making their decision on what to do with these apostles they've arrested. And he tells them, don't you remember all these Jewish revolts that have happened in the past? They've gained a couple hundred people. They've tried to revolt, and it's died out. Their movements have died out. He says, if this movement that you're, you're in the midst of right now, of these followers of Jesus, if this is a movement of man, it's going to fail. But then notice what else he says. As we get into verse 39, chapter 5 still, it says, But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. 
you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. God will accomplish what he has set out to do. When Jesus tells them in Acts 1.8, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, it's a promise that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. The apostles are released, and they rejoice that they were considered worthy enough to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And it says they never stopped preaching. Even in the midst of their arrest, in the midst of all their persecution, they never cease to preach. So for you and me who are asking the question, will I obey God rather than men? Here's your promise. If you obey God, you can rest assured the gospel will advance. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. The apostles continue to get beaten. They continue to get arrested. Even just a couple chapters later, we're going to see Stephen pop up, who's the first one killed for the faith. But we can rest assured God accomplishes the mission he's called us to. If the day comes to obey God or men, God will always honor the message of Christ. Always. His kingdom will advance as he promised. And that's the promise for us to rest in and lean on when the day comes and the question comes before us, will I obey God rather than men? And we see this emphasizing of the preaching of Christ continue as we go into the next chapter. So here we have external opposition again, right? People outside the church opposing them. Now we're going to go back to internal opposition again as we go into the first part of chapter 6. We get into chapter 6 and we find out we have widows who are being who were being helped by the church. Remember, the church was selling their possessions, helping anybody who had need. We found that out last week. So they're giving this money to the widows who need it. Right? That's one group of people who needed help and assistance. So they're giving the money to the widows. But what we find out is the Greek-speaking widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hebrew-speaking widows are being favored. So we have this dilemma, the internal opposition coming up here, and the, the apostles have to make a decision. Let's listen into what they say in chapter 6, verse 2. It says, The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching, preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom. And whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles say, we've been called to preach Christ, right? The apostles are going towns and cities and countries, preaching Christ, praying for people, seeing people get healed. So they say, find seven men. But there's qualifications for them. 
right? We'll see other qualifications later on for these same for these this position in the church, but here at least the qualifications are they must be respected, they must have the spirit, and they must have wisdom. Right? And it says these are the men who are going to serve. That's the term used here, serve. That's where we actually get the term deacon from. These are the first deacons of the church. They said they must be held in high esteem. They must have spiritual maturity to them. And they must be known to handle things rightly. They must have the wisdom to handle situations. And the apostles say we're going to commit ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And we see that this was the right decision for them to make. Because later on it says the word of God continues. And disciples are multiplied and the church continues to grow. God blesses this decision. So this was the right thing for them to do. More people are being saved. This is just a reminder for us here in Acts that there's an importance placed, a priority placed on prayer, preaching, and serving. That these are elements of the church leadership up until this point in Acts of what we've seen. Now, we don't have apostles now, right, going town to town preaching Jesus. We Instead, we've been given pastors who have been given the ability to focus in on a specific congregation within a specific town in order to serve them. But this doesn't mean that the importance of these things have changed. If you read Paul's letters to Timothy, Timothy's a pastor, a young pastor. And the emphasis you see Paul giving Timothy over and over is preach the word. Pray for people. So all I'm saying here is I'm not an apostle, right? I would never consider myself one. I'm a pastor, but even based on other letters to pastors in the New Testament, my priority is prayer, preaching, and then serving. Does that make sense? The apostles put a priority on prayer and preaching, and then serving was also a priority, but they found people to help them with it, deacons. Right, So that's what we have also. We have deacons who come alongside, right? who come alongside the church, and they serve the church. Right? So while the pastor commits himself to preaching, teaching, that doesn't mean I don't serve. That doesn't mean I'm not going to do administrative things. It doesn't mean I'm not going to counsel people. It doesn't mean I'm not going to do any of that sort of stuff. It just means that my priority is the same as the apostles. My first commitment to you as a church is to pray for you, And to make sure that you have the word of God before you every week. And apart from that, serve you with the word in any way that I can. And the deacons come alongside that and say, we're also going to serve the people. Now that means a number of different things. As you know, the deacons in our church do a number of different responsibilities. So, that doesn't, sometimes that means taking care of, well... When we have deacons who are trustees, it means they have to take care of the church as well as the people. But what we're going to see as we continue, though, is this story changes. As we move from the church and what's going on with these deacons, we, we're going to actually now, it kind of zooms in on the life of a couple of these deacons as well as another witness. So 
Our last kind of point that we're going to discuss today, but it's a really long point, is we're given three good examples of witnesses and one bad example of a witness. And that takes us through a good chunk of chapter 9. So let's jump into it. Here in in chapter 6, we see one of the deacons mentioned, a guy named Stephen. I call Stephen our candid witness because Stephen is willing to be honest with people. Right? He has candor with people. We see that Luke describes him as doing signs and wonders, right? Another descriptive moment, not prescriptive moment. That doesn't mean that each of our deacons here has to be able to do signs and wonders, right? It's not prescriptive for us. It's descriptive of there was the spirit was moving and spreading the gospel very quickly at this point in history. So something Stephen was given the specific ability to do. We'll also see a deacon named Philip with the specific ability to do signs and wonders. Stephen starts to have men argue with him. But it says these men weren't able to keep up with him. Because Stephen was so full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Not that he was eloquent in and of himself, but he was full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And so what these people say is we're going to set up false witnesses to try to get Stephen in trouble. We can't keep up with him when we try to argue with him. So we're going to set up some people to try to lie about him and say that he's trying to turn people away from our Jewish faith. From what the Old Testament says, which we know really Christ is the culmination of the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament climaxes with Jesus. It points to Jesus. It's not a neglect of the Old Testament to be a Christian. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament to be a Christian. And so the high priest comes to Stephen and he says, we have these witnesses saying these things about you. Are they true? And we see this huge, long summary of the Old Testament in chapter 7. Stephen goes through the Old Testament story. He talks about Abraham and the promises that were given to him. He talks about that he promised the descendants of Abraham that they would be given the promised land. But it would be a time after they were enslaved by a nation and that they were rescued. He then goes to Joseph and he talks about how Joseph was rescued by God time and time again. And how Joseph brought his family to Egypt. And then we have this whole long section about Moses, how Israel was enslaved, just like God told Abraham they would be, and how God used Moses to bring them out of Egypt. But then as soon as they get out of Egypt, what happens when Moses goes up to get the law? They turn to Aaron and they say, we want a golden calf to worship. Meanwhile, God's telling Moses, have no idols. They build a golden calf and worship it. So now we see Stephen start to condemn Israel's idolatry that's happened. The fact that they were rejecting their God at that point in time. We'll see why that's important as we get into the next part. But he then turns to Joshua, David, Solomon in the Old Testament. All speaking about how God had the tabernacle and temple set up for his presence to dwell with his people. Right, But then he turns, he, he, he switches it a little bit on these, these people who are questioning him. Because Stephen says, you have been so focused on your laws, on the temple and the tabernacle and all this stuff, that you've forgotten this. 
And he quotes a scripture that says, that's God saying, heaven is my throne. That while God's presence did dwell with his people in the Old Testament, God's throne is heaven. God, it doesn't mean that God's only authoritative, authoritative place is with the Jewish people. God rules over everything. His throne is over everything. Their hearts are in the wrong place if they're focusing so much on the temple that they miss the Jesus. We see that there's this rejection of God in Israel's history. Right? We see Stephen pointing to this rejection, and it kind of sets him up for what he says here at the end of his speech. So he summarizes all this Old Testament stuff, and then he turns to these people and says, Luke chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. We can see why they get upset. Pretty harsh language from Stephen, but true. He says, your hearts haven't been changed. You're just like your father. They rejected their God with the golden calf. You're rejecting Jesus because you're so focused on your man-made laws. So it clearly enrages them to the point that they take him out of the city and stone him to death. And here we have the first martyr. But as Stephen is facing this death, he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And in the midst of looking at that, Stephen is able to echo Christ to his list to these people who are killing him. Because Stephen says, Father, receive my spirit. Sounds like Jesus. And then he asks him to forgive the people that are killing him. But we see that what caused Stephen to die was the fact that he was a candid witness. He was honest with the message to the people that he was sharing with. And he was willing to face the results of it. The truth is, even for ourselves, the gospel message isn't a painless one. It's a painful thing to hear how much of a sinner you are, or I am. It's not an enjoyable fact. It's not something we like to hear about ourselves. Right? What Stephen said about them is it's true for all of us. We've all rejected God at one point. We all have had hearts that weren't changed like they should have been. So we hear this, and that's us, but also, that's everybody around us that doesn't know Jesus. Ephesians, Paul describes it that the people without Christ are dead. Jesus says that those who don't follow him, their father is of the devil. Romans says that these people have no fear of God. These are the descriptions. Colossians says that we are hostile to God. These are the descriptions of us before Jesus. That's you and me. So, the point is, 
for us to be faithful to the gospel message, we have to share the bad news before we share the good news. Bad news is we've all messed up. We're all sinners, deserving of distance from God, absence of God. People aren't going to trust in a Savior if they don't know what they need to be saved from. So for Stephen, sharing this message meant death. But Stephen said what? I must obey God rather than men. Are you willing, what are you willing to lose, to sacrifice for the sake of sharing the truth of the whole gospel message with the people around you? Telling somebody they're a sinner could mean a loss of friendship. Is it worth it? Because in order to share the bad news, then you get to get to the good news. In the midst of Stephen's execution, we see a little blurb here. It just sets up later. We see a blurb about a guy who gave approval to the execution, a guy named Saul. Don't worry, we'll get to him. But it just sets it up that he was involved in this execution. And then it goes into Acts chapter 8, talking about how Saul was ravaging the churches, dragging Christians to, pr- to prison. Then we get to chapter 8, and we see a guy named Philip. I call Philip our faithful witness, right? We see now that with Stephen's execution, people start to scatter, right? People start to spread out now because they're facing death. It says they scattered into Samaria. I hope that harkens you back to last week, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. By Stephen's execution, the gospel starts to spread to what Jesus already said it was going to spread to. But we see the the people in Samaria, right? And remember, the people in Samaria are the people that are the unclean people. They're the ones who don't deserve this message. They respond quite differently than Stephen's audience did. These people receive the gospel with joy. It says that the whole city was filled with joy as they respond to Philip's preaching. So we see Philip is doing signs and wonders. There's joy in the the city. The whole city is filled with joy. And then we come to a man named Simon the Magician. And we're given hints to think that he's a believer. He's amazed by what Philip is doing. This is a well-known man of power in Samaria. But he's a man of gimmicks, right? He's a magician. He does the sleight of hand. But that's, in, that's nothing compared to what, to what Philip's doing here in front of him. Philip's actually healing people. There's signs and wonders being done. So Simon's amazed by what's going on. And we, we think he's starting to maybe believe. But this is where we see the bad example. right? So in the midst of Philip's story, Philip's the good witness, the faithful witness. We have Simon the fake witness show up passage says or hints at that he may have believed we see whether this was an authentic belief peter and john come to samaria because the people of samaria though they believed in jesus they haven't received the spirit yet right and this again descriptive moment not prescriptive moment right 
Now we know that when someone believes in Jesus, they receive the Spirit. But at this point, the apostles were known as the authority of pulling the unity of the church together. So they wait for an apostle to come, lay their hands on these people, and give them the Spirit. We'll see later in Acts, actually, people who aren't Jews receive the Spirit upon believing without an apostle being there. So we see that this is just a specific moment in the history of the church. And notice... Philip's the one who went and preached. All of them believed the message that Philip told them. But now who's the star of the story? The apostles Peter and John. It just shows that part of Philip's faithfulness is he's willing to go unnoticed. He doesn't get much glory in this. Some of you or some people listening online may have never even heard of Philip before we get to Acts chapter 8. So Simon sees Peter and John giving the spirit to people. And he comes to them and he says, how much so that I can do the same thing? And we're like, wait a second. I thought you were a believer. Now you're trying to pay for the spirit? And it just shows that he's missed it. He's, he's not a real believer at this point. Look at what... Peter says to him, Acts chapter 8, verse 20. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. can't pay for it right that's what simon finds out and simon actually responds with being scared of what peter has just said to him i don't think it necessarily turns into authentic belief but he's scared of the reality of everything peter just told him the whole point of this for us is what do you come to jesus expecting to get some of you this really makes a lot of sense for those of you who have kids or grandkids because you think they're only Sometimes they only come to you to get something out of you, right? It may seem silly to ask the question. Because for true believers, we know that you come to Jesus to get reconciliation with God. That you get a relationship restored that has been broken. But church, we got to remember that there's bookstores out there that are making a killing on books saying that you're going to get money, that you're going to get health, that you're going to get a better job, that you're going to get all the desires of your heart if you follow Jesus. Let's not forget, Timothy was sick. Paul had to make tents for a living. Jesus says, I have nowhere to lay my head tonight. That's the life of a believer. But you get God. You get to be reconciled back to the creator of the universe by the blood of Jesus. Coming to Jesus is not about what can I get from him unless you're coming to get God. That's it. Back to Philip. We see another story. The angel tells him, go down to Gaza. Which, by the way, Gaza is a city that's been destroyed years ago by Alexander the Great. The road to Gaza is one that's not traveled. 
It's all worn down from what it used to be, but nobody uses it anymore. But the Spirit tells Philip, go. So Philip, being the faithful witness, is faithful to go. And as he's going, he runs into the Ethiopian eunuch, who's reading Isaiah. Just listen. The Ethiopian eunuch has the Old Testament. He's a Jewish believer, follower of the Jewish faith at this point. We'll find out that he becomes a Christian. But listen to what he's reading, and he asks Philip to explain it to him. Chapter 8, verse 32. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb, before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. This Ethiopian news reading one of the most well-known Old Testament prophecies of Jesus. And asks Philip, who's this about? So clearly, Philip shares the gospel with him. We see that the Ethiopian eunuch believes. He's baptized, and he goes on his way. The gospel first going to Egypt, right? That's where that area of Ethiopia where he was headed, Egypt, is because of Philip's faithfulness. Because the Spirit said, go to a road that nobody walks on anymore. And he went. And he was faithful to share the message. So Philip was faithful to go, and he was faithful to preach. Just a reminder for us that God might call us to some places we don't expect to get called to. He might call you to witness to somebody that you don't expect to be witnessing to. Are you going to be faithful to that? And then we see the final witness, final point here, final person. We see in Acts chapter 9, we see Saul, the man who's been killing all these Christians. He's actually got a letter in his hand on his way to kill some, to take some into prison at least. And he's on his way on the Damascus road. He's headed to Damascus to gather all the Christians and take them to prison. And Jesus shows up in a bright shining light to him and says, why are you persecuting me? And we see that Saul becomes blind. God goes to a man named Ananias, different Ananias than before. And he says, I want you to go to Saul in the city. I want you to tell him, you know, that I'm going to send him as an apostle to the Gentiles. Ananias is like, I've heard about this guy. This is the guy killing everybody. God says, go. So Ananias goes, and we see that he heals Paul's blindness, right? Ananias shares Christ with him, talks about Christ with him. Paul is a believer at this point, right? Saul, who later becomes Paul. So we see that Saul becomes a believer. He's going to be a witness to the Gentiles. Really strange. We have the Jewish leader killing Christians, now becoming a Christian, and now becoming an apostle to all the unclean people. We see that Saul stays with some disciples in Damascus. He preaches Christ there. People try to kill him already, so he gets a plot to escape, goes to Jerusalem. The disciples are like, "Mm, not sure about you yet. One man, Barnabas, says, let's hear him out. 
Saul shared his story. He's received in with the apostles, with the disciples. Saul continues to preach Christ boldly. Another murder plot happens. Paul, Saul escapes again. And we see all of this end with chapter 9, verse 31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Because of these faithful witnesses, we see the gospel start to expand. Stephen to some Jews that killed him. Philip to the Samaritans. Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. And now Saul is going to go to the Gentiles. Saul is our unexpected apostle, unexpected witness. Saul is like the Babe Ruth of Christianity. I'm a Red Sox fan, so you can understand, you know, Babe Ruth goes from the Red Sox to the Yankees. Red Sox don't win the World Series for 86 years. Whole shebang. Nobody expected the Red Sox to sell Babe Ruth to the Yankees. And this is even bigger than that. Nobody expects the guy killing all the Christians, the Jew killing all the Christians, to not only become a Christian, but to become the one who's going to share Jesus with all the unclean people. Let's not forget, Paul's background is our background. Though we may not have killed Christians, Paul's mentality about Jesus was our mentality about Jesus. Saul is you. Saul is me in the story. There's a reason why after many faithful years to Christ, Saul, Paul, later calls himself still the chief of all sinners. We need to still hold on to that brokenness of our own sin still. Your savior is only as great as what he is saving you from. And as we realize our own salvation, we realize that God calls us to share it to unexpected people. A Jewish leader killing Christians, now preaching Christ to those who aren't the Jews. Look at your life. Who is the person you least expect to believe in Jesus? Because they might be Saul. As we look through these chapters, we realize the circumstances of being a Christian in their day and age and in our day and age is never going to be easy. Persecution is inevitable after all. But the promise of the inevitable advancement of the gospel should stir our hearts to continue to be witnesses. We're unexpected witnesses like Saul. Realizing our own unworthiness of salvation. But we're saved by a candid message like Stephen. Saying you need your heart to be changed. Saying that you need to repent. It's a painful thing to hear and it's a painful process to go through. But it's the only message that can save us. And it's only in believing that message that we can be faithful like Philip that we can go preach Christ to the unexpected people 
just like us, just like somebody once shared him with us. So for those of you listening in, whether in here or online this morning, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, it may sound like a painful message. It is. But the bad news leads to the good news. That if you would trust in Christ, your unworthiness would be changed. Not that you would all of a sudden become perfect or altogether righteous, but Christ's righteousness would be given to you so that you can be in relationship with God. For those of you who are at home this morning, we invite you to come join us. One thing we see throughout the book of Acts is we need each other. The church needs each other. So I hope you'll come join us. And for those of us this morning who do know Jesus, persecution's coming. Whether it's rejection by someone you care about or whether it's something that's going on that seems in the other part of the world that's one day going to come to us. I don't know what time frame. I just know what's coming. It can be as simple as rejection. It can be as harsh as death. But I can promise promise you this. The gospel goes on. God uses his faithful witnesses for his purposes. And nothing can stop him. Nothing will thwart his plan. He will always, always win in the end. The question is, are you and I going to be a part of it? Let's pray. Father, may we be faithful. Faithful to your word. Faithful to share Christ. May these accounts of what happened in the early church stir our hearts. To want to be good witnesses in the midst of a world that seems to be more and more hateful towards Jesus. May we stand strong. May we, as the song earlier said, may you uphold us by your omnipotent hand. Strengthen us so that we might boldly, lovingly share the gospel with those around us. May that be the type of church that we become, that we are faithful to Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name.